Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. We bring you the story of a surfboard with a sail packed with weather instruments deployed inside a hurricane. Did it survive? This was a tough one. Uh, we, we were about a week ahead of time. We, we uh, saw that Fiona would probably intensify into a hurricane and go into the North Atlantic, close to where we had uh, sailed her in 1078. So we positioned it ahead of time, but then the track forecast kept shifting to the west. So it was a challenge because the winds were pretty weak at that time, way ahead of the storms. Are these so-called sail drones the future for hurricane forecasting? Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has the update. Plus, we go to the beach and we see the seaweed, at times like a thick carpet along the shoreline. Where does this sargassum seaweed come from? When we look at all our collection data, we see that these sargassum species are feeding off nitrogen that is coming from land-based sources. Meteorologist Jackson Dill brings us this weedy story. That's coming up next on Weather or Not. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. Sail drones, as they are called, have been featured on this podcast since they made their first appearance in 2021. Vivian Gonzalez brought you the info then, and she has an update now. For the second year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, and Sail Drone are hurricane chasing with uncrewed wind-powered vehicles. Sail Drone Explorer 1078 was directed into the midst of Hurricane Fiona. Sail Drone 1078 is one of the seven hurricane sail drones that have been operating in the Atlantic Ocean and Gulf of Mexico during this hurricane season, gathering data around the clock to help understand the physical processes of hurricanes. This knowledge is so important in being able to improve storm forecasting and reduce the loss of human life by enabling better preparedness along coastal communities. On this episode of Whether or Not, I get to talk to Dr. Gregory Fultz. He is an oceanographer and Atlantic Oceanographic Meteorological Laboratory's lead principal investigator of the Prediction and Research Moored Array in the Tropical Atlantic Northeast Extension. His research is concentrated primarily on tropical cyclone, ocean interaction, and tropical climate variability, including the change and their links to the ocean. Dr. Foltz has worked on improving the understanding of ocean mixed layer dynamics in the tropics and the impact of ocean temperature and salinity on tropical cyclone intensification. He is working closely with NOAA's operational centers to transition research to operations in order to improve weather and climate forecasts and assessments. And on this episode of Whether or Not, we're going to talk about Fiona, which was a historic storm for Atlantic Canada and a deadly storm in the Caribbean, and how a sail drone went into Fiona to gather more information to help the forecasts down the road. 
Okay. So we're going to get straight to it. Have you been helping out with, with the forecasting with Ian or, or have you been involved in that? No, no, we don't do forecasting. The National Hurricane Center does the forecasting. We're more on the research side of things. Okay. So, I was just curious yeah. to see if you were involved in that. No. Out of curiosity, did they end up sending a sail drone as well to Ian or no? Uh, we had a sail drone in the kind of in the northeastern Gulf, south of Dustin, Florida, south of the Panhandle. And we, we started sending it to the southeast to get into the storm. Good advanced warning, but, you know, the winds were weak. They're powered by the, only by the winds and the winds were so weak, we couldn't get it into position in time. It measured close to tropical storm force winds to the northwest of uh, kind of the northwestern part of the storm. But yeah, so. I'm excited about the sail drones mission because that's just a another tool that's going to eventually help and help with intensity forecasting. So I'm curious yeah. to see how this is going to help out down the road. We know that Fiona was a historic storm for the Atlantic Canada, and it was also a deadly storm in the Caribbean. And a sail drone did manage to go into Fiona. And this is really a true test to the sail drone design. So what are your thoughts seeing the first images of a sail drone going through major hurricane Fiona? Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> to be honest, it was kind of a relief because this, this was a tough one. Uh, we, we were about a week ahead of time. We, we uh, saw that Fiona would probably intensify into a hurricane and go into the North Atlantic close to where we had uh, sailed her in 1078. So we positioned it ahead of time, but then the track forecast kept shifting to the West. So it was a challenge because the winds were pretty weak at that time, way ahead of the storm. So it was really a challenge to get it westward to get it to intercept the storm. And it finally got there. We just missed the eye wall, but still got hurricane force winds. So uh, it was a relief to get it into the storm and really exciting to see, to see the videos and the pictures come back. Now, how has NOAA benefited from the data collected by sail drone into tropical systems? So the main, at this point, the main objective is better understanding hurricanes. And we're analyzing the data and trying to understand how hurricanes work better. That's very important. That's kind of the first step. And then with that improved understanding, we can hopefully improve the forecast models. And that's where the, the better predictions um, ideally, you know, eventually will come in. So the, yeah, so we're using the data to understand the exchanges of heat and momentum uh, between the ocean and the, and hurricanes. It's very important because the ocean is the ultimate source of energy for hurricanes. And that's where the sail drone data is good. We get continuous high quality measurements uh, on the surface of the ocean where this important exchange of heat and energy, um, where these are occurring. So how are you using the sail drone data in your forecast or how can, can you walk us through the process of how that data is being used? Uh, yeah, so there are a couple of different ways. Um, the data from the sail drones goes in real time, uh, is transmitted through satellites and goes around the world to forecast centers. So that includes the United States, includes the European, uh, Canadian, you know, a lot of different forecast models that can ingest this data uh, from the sail drones. So that's one way that the uh, sail drone data can potentially uh, aid forecasts going directly into the models. The other way is the data also goes to uh, the National Hurricane Center and they can see the data coming in, the forecasters can see it, and they can get a better idea of the current situation, what the intensity of a storm is when the sail drone is there uh, returning data. So those are kind of the main ways, at least in real time, that uh, the sail drone data, we hope, can, can aid 
um, kind of situational awareness and forecasts. Now, there's not much known behind the science of rapid intensification. Do you believe that sail drones will help bridge that gap? Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. I mean, rapid intensification is really, really a top priority uh, in terms of research within NOAA and forecasting. It's a huge challenge. And it's really, as we saw with Hurricane Ian, I mean, it's a, it's a really dangerous situation if a hurricane intensifies rapidly before a landfall. And uh, we don't, uh, don't understand it really well. So yeah, we hope these measurements from the sail drones Along with all the other data, there's lots of other data being collected, of course, from aircraft, uh, from satellites, other observing systems in the ocean. But the sail drone data gives us, you know, this, this crucial exchange of energy, heat energy from the ocean to the hurricane. We hope can better help us better understand uh, rapid intensification. And do you see this becoming an increasingly more utilized tool in the future to better examine surface observations of hurricanes? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think it has great potential. We're, we're in the second year of doing these sail drone missions. We did our experimental first uh, mission last year and it went really well. Uh, we got a sail drone into category four Hurricane Sam into the eye wall and it did really well, gave us good data. So yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's, uh, that's what we hope. <laughs> we can keep getting these measurements, yeah. And how many sail drones do you know of that are in the Atlantic Basin to help gather the information? We have seven sail drones this year, um, two more than we had last year. And those are in two in the Gulf of Mexico, one in the west, one in the east, and the other five are in the Western Atlantic and Caribbean, one in the Caribbean Sea. I believe from what you were saying that timing pretty much is everything. How do you really time out where you send a drone to? Well, so yeah, before the season, the hurricane season starts, the sail drones are deployed usually in June or July. Okay. And it can, that's because it can take them a month or so to get from where we deploy them, usually in Florida or somewhere in the Caribbean, U.S. Virgin Islands. It can take a while for them to get from where they're deployed to the regions where we want them to be for the hurricane season. And we chose those regions based on historical hurricane activity. We look at the past 20 years and do some statistics, and we can see historically where hurricanes are most likely to go. And that's where we put the sail drones. So, you know, to have the best chances of getting into a hurricane. Okay. So for example, I know that the command center that controls the sail drones is based out of California. So are you in constant communication in terms of, okay, there's this storm that's out there. We know it's going to make it to land. How can we get a sail drone to that particular location? Right. Exactly. Yep. So we have the, we have the pilots, uh, we call them the pilots out in California. And they're the ones doing the actual piloting, communicating with the sail drones through uh, satellite communications. And we make all the decisions, right? So we'll say we're constantly looking at the forecasts and saying, um, you know, this looks like it, it's, it's a storm that could intensify and get close to one of the sail drones. Let's move the sail drone here to position it. And then, you know, out in California, they do, the, uh, they do the actual piloting of the sail drone to get it there. And so, yeah, so it's a really close coordination between us and the the pilots out in uh, California. What do you hope comes out of your partnership with sail drones? I hope, <laughs> I hope it continues. It's been really, it's been really good. It's a really good example of a um, government private uh, partnership uh, that's worked really well over the past decade. And yeah, I hope it continues to grow and 
we continue to, to work together like this. It's been really good. Now, when the sail drone was going through Fiona, it was when it was a major storm, correct? Yeah, it was a category four hurricane at the time. I think, um, don't know the exact 130 or 140 mile an hour winds. Yeah. The sail drone design was built to withstand, I, I believe, a category three. So this may have been a little bit higher when it actually went through Fiona. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know exactly what the target was for you know the, the strength of the storm that the sail drone could survive, but it, I mean, yeah, it went, it went through a category four last year, even in more harsh conditions than in Fiona. So yeah, it's, it, we were surprised to be honest. We didn't think it would survive completely intact and return data the whole time. So yeah, uh, it's been a really good, really good design. I mean, I saw the images of the video massive waves, destructive waves, and that sail drone was still taking video. And it was just incredible to see like eye opening, like that's what happens in the ocean in the middle of a storm. Cause we, we have like a grasp of what could happen, but when you see it is a different story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, before, you know, before these pictures and videos from the sail drones uh, that we've been sending into hurricanes, I don't think I don't think there had ever been, you know, at least videos from the surface of the ocean inside a major hurricane, right? I don't think anybody <laughs> really knew uh, what it looks like, and it was amazing to see the first pictures and videos. Yeah, I, you know, I had no idea. I was just in awe of the the power and the force uh, inside a hurricane like that. Are you using the data from the sail drones into your research? Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're doing, we're analyzing the data now. We have a, there's a whole team of us, uh, you know, kind of involved with the missions and the science and uh, analyzing the data. So we're looking at things like, like I said, the heat flux, right? And we found that the ocean, the subsurface ocean uh, can have an important impact on um, the heat flux. And that's by the changing the ocean's surface temperature. So actually salinity plays a role too, reducing the cooling as a hurricane goes by and that keeps the ocean warmer and that can allow more energy to be transferred to the hurricane. So we're looking at things like that with the sail drone data, the momentum exchange. So the ocean kind of slows down the hurricane's winds as the winds go over the ocean and hit the waves, for example, it slows down the winds. We're looking at that directly with the sail drone wind data, 20 Hertz high frequency wind data. We can look at the turbulence of the wind and how that uh, contributes to this drag or the frictional effect. So it's like a balance between this drag effect and the exchange of heat that tends to intensify a hurricane. That's like a basic balance that we want to understand better. Yesterday was impressive in the morning. I think it was 4 a.m. I saw that the winds were at 130 and then at 5 a.m. 155. Then we were seeing Hurricane Hunter data with some wind speeds of up to 158, 159. We're like, it's right on the cusp of a five. Yeah. And it happened so quickly. Yeah. And I don't, that, that was not well predicted. I mean, these, yeah, these, these things are very difficult to predict with the eyewall replacement cycles. I mean, there's their dynamics of the hurricane, how it's interacting with the ocean how it's making and cooling the ocean or whether it's not cooling the ocean at all. So yeah, it's, it's complex and we need measurement, more measurements, more data <laughs> to understand it. Our hurricane season got jump-started late, at least in activity. Normally we have more activity in the month of August. So the water is extremely hot, peak summer. And now you get these storms going through certain locations and you have this deep hot water that also played a role. 
Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's <laughs> the Gulf of Mexico, especially, has been a lot warmer than normal um, this year and you know in past years. So that has definitely played a role. The warming ocean and uh, yeah, like you said, temperature. I think uh, clocked in like at eighty-seven degrees. Really warm. I mean, and like you said, there haven't been any really any strong storms in that area this whole season. So there's been nothing to mix it up and cool it off. So yeah, I mean, that's yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Vivian. Whether or not, we'll be right back as we try to weed out the truth of sarcasm seaweed. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the storm station. Seven News. You go to the beach and... They are there, bunches of little plants known as sargassum seaweed. They are an eyesore and they can stink up a storm as they decompose. What do they do in our ecosystem? Are they good or bad? Meteorologist Jackson Dill has more. If you've been to an East Coast beach in Florida, there's a good chance you have seen plenty of seaweed in the ocean or piled up on the sands. Well, that seaweed is known as sargassum and has been more of a problem in recent years. I spoke to research professor Dr. Brian LaPointe from Florida Atlantic University to learn more about it. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. To start off, what is the sargassum seaweed and where does it come from? Sargassum seaweed is a brown seaweed. It has nematocysts or air bladders that allow it to float. And while there are many species that live on the bottom of the ocean, we call those benthic species, there are only two species that actually float on the surface of the ocean. And we call those sargassum natans and sargassum fluitans. So those are the only two species that actually float on the ocean surface. And it's those two species that we've been seeing this massive influx of this past summer. The big influx of sargassum is coming from a new oceanographic phenomenon in the tropical Atlantic Ocean that extends between Africa and South America. We call this the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt. And, you know, in the past, when we we think about sargassum, these floating species of brown seaweeds, we tend to think of the Sargasso Sea which is the central gyre of the North Atlantic Basin. And Portuguese sailors in Columbus were the first to see and describe those species floating in the middle of the ocean. But what we're talking about now is a whole new distribution area for sargassum that has formed just since 2011. It's never been there before. And this is where a tremendous amount of new sargassum is growing. And the currents and winds carry it up through the Caribbean into the Gulf of Mexico and the South Florida region. And it is now considered the largest algal bloom on our planet. It extends for 8,850 kilometers from the coast of Africa all the way up to the Gulf of Mexico and South Florida. Is there a particular time of the year to see sargassum washing up along the coast? So I've been researching sargassum since the early 1980s and 
have collected it in the Sargasso Sea, the Gulf Stream, the Gulf of Mexico, all around the Caribbean, and even in the Amazon plume off of Brazil. And when we look at all our collection data, we see that these sargassum species are feeding off nitrogen that is coming from land-based sources, notably the major rivers, the Congo River in Africa, the Amazon. Those are the two largest river systems on our planet. And the Mississippi, the Orinoco, and even here in South Florida, all the water being sent south from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay in the Florida Keys has quite a bit of nitrogen in it. And that feeds it as well, as well as the discharges from the inlets on the east coast of Florida. So those discharges, they really increase from the winter into the spring, meaning more nitrogen is coming in to feed that sargassum during the spring. So we think of this as the spring bloom, and it peaks in the summer, in the middle of summer in July. And that's why we tend to see the, the most sargassum occurring in July or sometimes August. But this year we had a relatively early sargassum season starting really in early April. And is there a particular reason for that nutrient input like fertilizers? Well, that's a great question, Jackson. So humans have greatly altered the global cycle of reactive nitrogen. We know there's a lot of nitrogen in our atmosphere, but most of that is inert nitrogen, N2. What we're talking about here are forms of nitrogen that are biologically available. Things like ammonium and nitrate that are found in fertilizers, human and animal wastewater, and fossil fuel emissions. So these, all these forms have been increasing for years. In fact, we have doubled the amount of reactive nitrogen on our planet. And a lot of this is being delivered through these major rivers, through their discharges to the coastal ocean where it can feed this growing sargassum bloom. It's becoming more common in recent years along the Florida coast. Well, you know, this, this great Atlantic sargassum belt, this new feature of the tropical Atlantic Ocean, you know, it's very complicated and we are, we are studying it, you know, uh, right now, looking at all the moving parts, the, the, the flow of the Congo River, the Amazon, natural upwelling that could provide natural nutrients, changes in temperature and climate. And so it's, it's complicated. However, you know, we do see that the trend is increasing. It, we don't believe uh, it's going to go away. It's not a one-off phenomenon. So we believe this is the new normal. But that being said, there is variability uh, seasonally. It, it, you know, it grows through the spring and becomes maximum biomass or area in the summer months. And then it diminishes through the fall. But also year to year, we can see variations. Uh, since 2011, when we first saw this, there was only one year that we saw no sargassum, and that was 2013, in terms of this great Atlantic sargassum belt. 2018 was the, the biggest year on record, although this year 
was the the longest extent of the bloom going from early April really through August and into September. It was a pretty intense year for sargassum influx to South Florida this year. And I can definitely attest to that. Whenever I go to the beach, that and the water is often filled with sargassum and it seems rather difficult to keep up with. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of keeping up with it, of course, uh, you know, local municipalities and counties are trying to deal with this influx and it's something we're going to have to adapt to in South Florida. You know, the Caribbean region has been impacted much more than we have in Florida, particularly uh, Riviera Maya in Mexico, the Yucatan region, but also islands like Barbados, the French Antilles. In 2018, that during that peak year, over 11,000 islanders on Martinique and Guadeloupe were diagnosed with acute exposure to toxic hydrogen sulfide, that stinky, rotten egg smell that you smell when all the sargassum is rotting and decomposing on the beach. So it, it can be, you know, a real health hazard if you're living in an area that's prone to those accumulations and decomposition of sargassum. So that must explain why there's been several beach closures earlier this year, especially on Key Biscayne here in South Florida. That could certainly be part of it. The other thing that happens when you have all this sargassum biomass decomposing, it also feeds bacteria in the water. And in places like South Florida, where you have a lot of septic tanks leaching into the groundwater and the adjacent coastal waters, you have a lot of fecal bacteria. And sargassum makes that problem worse because it, it basically is food for those bacteria. And so you can have violations of state water quality standards that also will cause uh, beaches to be shut down. And so there's the impact to human health. Is there an impact to marine life health too? It does. These massive influxes of sargassum along the shoreline when they decompose the water turns brown, you know, it becomes very discolored. It causes low oxygen conditions, which allows for the production of hydrogen sulfide. And in all those things, you reduce light, they reduce oxygen in the water, and that can have very serious effects on seagrasses and corals. And so we have noticed that since 2014 in the Florida Keys, where we have seen a major uptick in the amount of sargassum coming in, that's when we began to see this stony coral tissue loss disease that began killing off what little bit of coral was left on our coral reefs in the Keys. That little bit started to disappear quite rapidly. And so we, we've lost a lot of coral since 2014 due to these diseases that are expanding on the corals. So that has correlated with this uptick in sargassum. And this is something we're looking at very closely right now. Is there anything that could be done that would prevent all this sargassum seaweed from reaching the coast? Well, one thing we can do is do more research to, to better understand the major drivers. You know, where is the bulk of this nitrogen coming from? 
For example, if it was the Congo River uh, on the east side of the tropical Atlantic Ocean, where we think it might be triggering every year on that side of the ocean, maybe it's the outflows of the Congo River that are feeding blooms and then it's spreading west towards the Amazon where it picks up more nitrogen. So we, we really need to know the relative inputs of nitrogen from these various sources and phosphorus too. So that's one thing we could do. Once we know that we have that information, then we can act on it and, and try to reduce those sources. Other sources that could be contributing in Africa are biomass burning, large fires associated with deforestation and Saharan dust. And of course, as I think you probably are well aware, there's been a lot of deforestation in the Amazon basin and extreme rain events, flooding that brings more nitrogen down the Amazon River. So again, by really doing some very focused research on these mechanisms and drivers, I, I think we could get a much better handle on, on what's driving these blooms and hopefully be able to mitigate it. Now, that's, that's far down the road, but on a shorter uh, term, there are things we can do locally. Uh, I know in Key West, in Marathon, Florida, they're looking at potentially using booms along the beaches to keep the sargassum off the beach and in the water. And actually in the Caribbean, they're using a combination of booms with harvesting boats and barges to not only hold the sargassum off the beach, but to harvest it into barges where they can potentially use it for a beneficial purpose like fertilizers or methane production, biofuel. So this is something that is a little more problematic in the United States because sargassum is protected by the federal government, by NOAA. It's considered a, an essential fish habitat, like a seagrass meadow or a coral reef. And as such, you cannot go out and just harvest sargassum in the water. Only once it's on the beach can you harvest it and, and clean the beach, for example. So this is something I think, you know, it's going to take some, some policy changes perhaps and research because really when that sargassum comes inshore and begins to rot along the beaches, it's really no longer serving a functional fish habitat at that point. It's really a, a dead zone. There's no oxygen in that water. You've got toxic hydrogen sulfide. In fact, we know it can kill sea turtles, right? Even adult sea turtles have died in those kinds of environments. So I think we'll need to rethink how we deal with sargassum in the southeastern United States along these beaches and perhaps look at, you know, research permits to, to begin to look at how we can keep it off the beaches and maybe harvest it using, you know, very careful methods not to harvest other species like sea turtles. And because once it's on the beach, it becomes a, a, a real impairment for, 
for sea turtles uh, hatching and trying to get to the sea, right, to begin their long journey around the ocean. As I said, it's a, a very complicated situation. We've never really encountered this scale of algae bloom washing up, you know, along our shores, causing all these environmental and human health problems. So we definitely need to pay more attention to it, do more research and adapt to our changing planet. All right, Brian LaPointe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jackson. We'll be right back. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station, Seven News. And now, a fail fact. Since 2011, the Caribbean has been experiencing blooms of sargassum seaweed. These blooms are so large at times that the University of South Florida has developed sargassum bloom maps of when we may be seeing them wash up on our beaches. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. Our next episode drops the 1st of November. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is produced by the 7 Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.